Good morning. Precious words we both read and sang together this morning as it prepares our hearts for the study of God's Word as we continue in our study of the words of Christ as He spoke during His earthly ministry and the Gospel of Matthew. And you can turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. You know, as you read through Scripture, as you study the writings of Christ, you begin to realize that there are a number of topics upon which Jesus speaks. And that's because there are a number of things in our life, a number of areas in our life, where we need that direction, that correction. There are many things that vie for our attention, our efforts, our energies. If I were to ask you which topic or topics Jesus speaks about the most, how would you answer? Maybe finance or money? Maybe anxiety? Perhaps loving your neighbor? Loving God? Maybe the topic of forgiveness? Or sin? Or certainly repentance? Now how you determine what topic Jesus discusses the most depends to a large extent on how you define talking about something. If you were to just do a strict word count, you would find that in terms of just terminology, finances or wealth is one of, if not the most predominant subjects. But that's based purely on word counts. The problem with that is that you find that a lot of times money may be referenced, but it's in reference to a more significant topic or another topic that Jesus is drawing our attention to. So really, it's better to understand and see that there are several topics that Jesus continue to repeat. And when you think about why something is repeated, all you need to do is think about why your parents or why you as a parent repeat things. It's important. It's something that needs to be remembered. It's something that we continually stray from. And the answer to those most common topics to which we see Jesus returning is certainly the kingdom of God, as we have been looking at that theme over and over again. Wealth and money, which is no surprise. Faith and salvation. But perhaps the one that would surprise most persons is that hell or judgment is right there at the top of the list. In fact, maybe it would surprise you to realize that Jesus spoke more frequently of hell than of love. Jesus speaks more of hell than all other New Testament writers combined. Despite the common assertion that the Old Testament is about judgment and the New Testament about love, is about love, what Jesus demonstrates through his teaching is that one of the most loving things you can do is to both teach, understand, and warn persons about the dangers of hell. As MacArthur writes, there is perhaps no doctrine harder to accept emotionally than the doctrine of hell. Yet it is too clear and too often mentioned in Scripture either to deny or to ignore. Jesus spoke more of hell than any of the prophets or apostles did, perhaps for the reason that its horrible truth would be all but impossible to accept had not the Son of God himself absolutely affirmed it. It had special emphasis in Jesus' teaching from the beginning to the end of his earthly ministry. More than all other teachers of the Bible combined, he warned men of hell, promising no escape for those who refuse his gracious, 
loving offer of salvation. So this morning, as we continue our study and wrap up this presentation of parables, our mind and our attention is directed toward the fires of hell. And we are going to observe the warning of hell, but we are also going to observe, directed to the disciples, those who have been saved from the fires of hell, the responsibility and the calling that any of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ have. So that's where our attention will be this morning. Read along with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 52. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household, who brings out of his treasures things new and old. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hymns and the songs we have sung this morning that orient ourselves to your gracious, loving kindness that has been directed to us. Father, yet we are all too aware of the fact that this salvation that has been offered is in light of the horrible reality of hell that awaits so many others. Lord, as ugly and as hard as it is to think about a subject like this, I pray that you would allow us to focus our thoughts and attentions onto this important subject. And Father, would it have its appropriate response in our lives, whether to call us to repentance, if that is the case, but for the, those of us that are your children who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, Father, would it have its and do its work in encouraging us and exhorting us to the proclamation of the gospel. Thank you for the time this morning. We thank you for these words as we look to study and help to guide and direct our thinking regarding this subject. In your name, amen. Well, our text this morning takes us yet again into the home where Jesus had been basing his operations there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He has been sitting there with his disciples, instructing them in the late afternoon or early evening. Perhaps at this point it's waned into the later evening hours. And he's been discussing the parables from earlier that day, and he's been helping to instruct them and teach them and orient their thinking correctly around the meaning of these parables. We were reminded yet again of the significance and the importance and that understanding comes through our relationship, our proximity, and drawing near to Jesus Christ. And so that's what we see with these disciples as they draw near to him to understand. But what is interesting is as Jesus teaches and he recounts and reflects and interprets and explains those parables from earlier in the day, he begins to offer a couple of parables and we saw two of them last week, that are directed specifically to disciples, to followers of Jesus Christ. 
And so here we see two new parables that are aimed at the disciples. It's important to recognize this as we come to the final two parables of this section where Jesus provides a parable concerning the horrors of hell and followed by a parable calling on those disciples who affirmed that yes, they understood Jesus' teaching, that they then become like scribes who teach and proclaim to others. And it's important because if we are disciples, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then these words have bearing upon how we are to respond, how we are to think, and how we are to act. Look together with me first at the parable of the dragnet. First, we need to define what a dragnet is. I don't think there's too many of us that are using them day in and day out. Uh, it's something of a descriptive term. It is a net that is drug. The dragnet was a relatively common way to capture fish in large quantities. It was different than nets that were cast from shore or those that were cast over the side of the boat and then pulled in over and over again. Instead, it involved a careful process of laying it out over hundreds of feet, upwards of a thousand feet, usually 750 to a thousand feet in length. It created something of a wall, approximately 25 feet high in the center and then it would taper off to about five feet high on the ends. The bottom of the net was weighted with sinker so it would drag along the bottom of the water or the, the sea floor. The top would have corks or something that would cause it to float so that it would be a vertical wall. And it would take more than one ship, it would take multiple ships to work at gathering and drawing this net closer and closer to shore. And as the boats and the men would drag the net towards shore, they would trap everything in its path, everything large enough to be caught in the net, not only fish, but anything else. And it wasn't just the good fish, it was every type of fish. That's the need for the sorting that we see. It was an efficient way to ensure that you caught fish. Actually, that was the quick part of the day. The long part of the day was the sorting. It was somewhat indiscriminate in what was trapped and brought to shore. The net would draw both good and bad from the depths of the sea to the shore and the sun so that they could be examined and sorted. Hilary of Poitiers described this as an appropriate metaphor for the work of God in bringing all persons out from this world into the light of the glory of God where all sin is exposed and the righteous and the unrighteous can be rightly judged. Notice Jesus' explanation. And notice what it focuses on, because while it clearly implies that the righteous are rescued from the eternal horrors of hell, the spotlight is on the unrighteous, the wicked. The focus of Jesus' explanation is not on the laying of the net or the process of drawing it in, though he comments on it, but the emphasis is on the sorting. Jesus is looking to the end and speaks with reference to the end of the age. He's not here laying out a timeline or a detailed description of events that will take place at the end of the age, but is focused on describing one particular event that happens. The sorting. The same type of sorting we saw back in verse 30 in the parable of the wheat and the tares. That at the end of the age, allowing those wheat and the tares to grow up together, that they would then be harvested and sorted, but not until that time. Emphasizing the patience and the mercy of God. And so notice what it is that we see and we can observe regarding this final day. 
First, we see that this final day is thorough. The net is cast broadly. The message of the kingdom is cast wide. It serves its twofold purpose to bring the righteous to repentance while bringing the unrighteous to judgment. And the every kind here again intimates the worldwide focus of the kingdom of God. We've come back to that and reiterated that. This was not a message just to the Jews. This was a message to the entire world. There will be good and bad from all over the world, from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. As one commentator notes, the dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the ocean of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation and their ultimate destiny. Believers to eternal life, unbelievers to eternal damnation. Men move about within that net as if they were forever free. It may touch them from time to time as it were startling them, but they quickly swim away, thinking they have escaped, not realizing they are completely and inescapably encompassed in God's sovereign plan. The invisible web of God's judgment encroaches on every human being, just as that of the dragnet encroaches on the fish. Most men do not perceive the kingdom. They do not see God's working in the world. They may be briefly moved by the grace of the gospel or frightened by the threat of judgment, but they soon return to their old ways of thinking and living, oblivious to the things of eternity. But when man's day is over and Christ returns to set up his glorious kingdom, judgment will come and it will be thorough. Secondly, we see that this final day is determined. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I wish I could say that the reality will be different, but I cannot. For Jesus himself does not. There is only one person who will tell you that. He is the devil, and he has been spreading that lie for centuries. He has told millions that the day of reckoning is always far off, if ever. And there will always be time for repentance or religion or whatever at a later date. In that way, he has lulled millions to sleep, and they now drift on, oblivious to their danger. Thirdly, we see that this final judgment is permanent. There are only two types of persons when it comes to this initial separation, the righteous and the unrighteous. We know that the righteous has a reference to those who have repented of their sins and experienced the mercy and the grace of God. The unrighteous or the wicked are those who have failed to repent in this life. After this life, there is no longer a chance for repentance. This life is all that exists in terms of the time frame you have to repent. Failure to repent and turn from sin in this life assures one's eternity in hell, in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Conversely, for the repentant, this life under the sun is preparation for life after the sun. This preparation involves following the steps of Christ. Fourthly, regarding this event, we note in the closing of verse 50, the assurance that the end of the wicked will be dreadful. Now, that is not pleasant to state. It is not enjoyable to dwell on. It's something like a grotesque image where we recoil or we turn away from it. We, we want to. We don't want to think about hell and what it really involves. We let our minds just glance over the subject, as it were. That persons are so wont to forget the reality of hell that to a large extent they do not even recognize that so much of Jesus' teaching concerns this horrific but important reality. And there are all sorts of reasons for not wanting to think long about hell and its terrors. 
For one, most of us know persons who have died in unrepentance. We do not want to think of the suffering that they are enduring for eternity in hell. It is a sad and horrible thing to think about. For others, it's not wanting to come to grips with that or live in light of it in this earth. And it's easier to deny an abstract concept and not think about it hard than to actually dwell on what the Bible teaches concerning hell. We've come up with all sorts of ways to forget and immunize ourselves against the reality of hell. Against the reality of judgment, that there is a God who judges sin. We've anesthetized ourselves through entertainment. Through all sorts of different things. So that we don't have to stop and think long and hard about judgment and hell and eternity. And yet, as we will see in verses 51-52... Our understanding, particularly as believers, and don't think that believers are immune to this. Believers themselves don't like to think about hell. Sadly, there are many churches who refuse to teach about sin and its consequences and hell. And yet, as we'll see in verses 51-52, our understanding of hell should be and is a major motivation for evangelism and proclaiming the kingdom of God. In fact, without hell, the good news is just news. Notice, too, that our job here is not the separating of the fish, but the gathering. We are to be fishers of men, preaching and proclaiming the gospel, but the separation is done by God and by means of his angels. We are to cast the seed broadly, to gather indiscriminately. It is not our job to prejudge persons, but rather to preach and proclaim, not to assume whether a person will or will not respond to the gospel. And while these verses do not afford us an overly detailed view of hell, it is worth noting a few characteristics of hell as we consider this sobering doctrine and reality. So with regard to hell itself, and really the expectation of hell, I want us to note that first, it will be a place of constant torment. Isaiah says in Isaiah 66, 24, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. You can turn with me to Jude. We're there in Jude, verse 7. There's only one chapter. Verse 7 we read, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Hell will be a place of constant torment. And just so you don't think that this is an impossibility, that you can have constant torment or constant fire that burns without burning something up, just think back to the early chapters of Genesis. What did Moses encounter? A burning what? Bush. A bush that was on fire, that was burning, that was not burning up. This is not theoretical. It's not picturesque. It's not a pure metaphor. It is very real. Secondly, it is a torment of both the body and the soul. We read in Matthew, you can turn back to Matthew 10. 
where we read in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Gregory the Great noted, The damned shall suffer an end without end, a death without death, a decay without decay, for their death ever lives, their end ever begins, their decay never ceases. They are ever healed to be newly wounded and always repaired to be newly devoured. They are ever dying and never dead, eternally broiling and never burnt up, ever roaring in the pangs of death, never rid of those pangs. For they shall have punishment without pity, misery without mercy, sorrow without support, crying without comfort, mischief without measure, torment without ease. Where the worm dies not, the fire is never quenched. Thomas Watson described the pain and suffering of hell, saying, Who can sum up the diversity of torments which are in hell? In hell there is darkness. Hell is a dark region. In hell there are sorrows. In hell there are bonds and chains. In hell there are pains and pangs. In hell there is the worm that never dies. In hell there is a lake of fire. In hell there is a furnace of fire. In hell there is the devil and his demons. And oh, how dreadful must it be to be shut up forever with those roaring lions. In hell there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thirdly, hell will have torment of varying degrees. Although the suffering will be severe and everlasting for all those in hell, the specific degrees of punishment and suffering will differ in accordance with the measure of sin in one's life. The extent of one's sinful influence on others and the amount of gospel light that was rejected. Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 29, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? John Gerstner writes, Hell will have such severe degrees that a sinner, were he able, would give the entire world if his sins could just be one less. Finally, hell will be everlasting. Later on, Jesus writes or says in Matthew 25, verse 41, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Revelation, we read Revelation 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Thomas Watson also wrote, Impenitent sinners in hell shall have end without end, death without death, night without day, morning without mirth, sorrow without solace, bondage without liberty. The damned shall live as long in hell as God himself shall live in heaven. These are sobering realities. It's not pleasant to think about. It's in considering these realities of hell 
And MacArthur notes, the Christian's heart is cold indeed, who is not deeply concerned and exercised about those around him who are destined for eternity in hell. To have the gift of eternal life but not share it with those who now have only the prospect of eternal death is the epitome of selfishness and lovelessness. And so it is thus little wonder that Jesus has one final parable for his disciples, a very short parable. One that closes out, at least Matthew's record, closes out that evening of discourse with his disciples. In verses 51 and 52, having concluded with those sobering words, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, do you understand these things? To which they respond, yes. And while we know their understanding was not yet complete, they would continue to grow in their understanding, it's also wrong to say they didn't understand at all. Yes, they understood. They understood enough to be able to say yes. They would continue to grow in their knowledge and understanding. But in light of all that they have heard, in light of drawing near to Christ and having him explain the things he has explained, they respond, yes. And so Jesus provides, in light of their understanding, a final parable that gives instruction and expectation to these disciples. In introducing the parable, Jesus uses the term scribe. Now, if you've been with us through the study of Matthew or you've read the Gospels before, you know that scribes aren't necessarily the good guys. So why would he use the term scribe? Scribes are often associated with the religious leaders who are opposed to Christ. Those who are described as whitewashed tombs, who are leading many to hell itself. Well, a scribe was one who was a student of Scripture, of the Old Testament. They had deep knowledge and understanding. They were relied upon for their understanding of the revealed will of God. They were often called lawyers with their ability to argue and articulate the nuances of law and bring it to bear on the life of the people. However, what we find is that even though, yes, when directed to the scribes of that day, the Jewish scribes, it was often negative, Jesus sometimes used the term in a less technical sense, at least a sense with regard to the scribes of Israel, but more to what it meant to be a scribe. In fact, he tells the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, that he will be sending forth his own scribes. Those verses in the Old Testament and his teaching. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23. Note this description and note how similar it is to what we read about Jesus' sending of the apostles and what we know about the sending of the disciples. But he says down in verse 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. These New Testament scribes, these scribes of Christ, are those who study Scripture, who study the teachings of of Jesus, who are familiar with Scripture, who are familiar with what he has to say. So those who have sat under his tutelage and those who 
later have this same knowledge handed down as it is from generation to generation. Jesus used this term scribe to communicate one who has become a student of Scripture and his teaching. In this brief parable that Jesus provides, just one verse, Jesus compares one who has become his scribe with the owner of a house. And notice what the owner of the house does. He brings out of his treasury things new and old. Now, why do you bring something out of a treasury? You bring it out to use it, to show it. You bring them out to show them off, to make use of these things. And the term treasury is not a benign term. It's one we are already familiar with. It's one that's been used metaphorically, figuratively already. And we have that figurative and metaphorical understanding already attached to this term and this phrase. Flip backward from Matthew 13, just one chapter, to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 34. Here we see both the negative and the positive use of treasury, but it it points to, and as a metaphor, it is a figure of speech for the same concept. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So what is the treasury? It's the mind. It's the heart. That use of heart is often it's tied to the volition, to the will, to the intellect throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. This description of the treasury is what you are filling your mind with. To become a scribe is to fill your mind with the knowledge of God. To study His Word, to study His teachings, to draw near to Christ. And then what is it that is brought forth? In chapter 12, it was very clear. What was brought forth were the words. This is the treasure that is brought out. It is the communication. Because what do words do? They are both useful and they show something. So the treasury out of which the homeowner draws is the treasure of his heart or mind. Scribes are teachers. These disciples are now called, in addition to disciple, apostle, disciple and apostle, they are now called scribes. They are to bring out, to expose for others, treasures both new and old. There is a responsibility that goes beyond these disciples and apostles that has been handed down to all believers through all generations to both understand Scripture and to proclaim it to others also. To expose the truth of the Old and the New Testament, which find their fulfillment in Christ. This is particularly important in light of the emphasis on hell that we have just seen. And don't miss that context. The faithful disciple becomes a scribe of Jesus and draws out things new and old in an effort to rescue persons from the terrific finality of hell. From that horror of hell. Note how the Old Testament still has a place alongside the New Testament as well. It is not new instead of old, but it is new and old. In this sense, all of Scripture is concerned with Christ 
That doesn't mean every passage explicitly teaches or preaches Christ, but all Scripture is building and pointing toward the need for and the coming Savior of all mankind. There is indeed that scarlet thread that runs throughout all of Scripture, binding it together as it points toward Christ. The revelation of repentance, salvation, the path of sanctification must be continually and faithfully proclaimed by the church, within the church, and outside the walls of the church. What Jesus is showing us through this parable is the responsibility of those who have been called fishers of men, which is true of all disciples. Everyone who claims the name of Christ is a disciple of Jesus Christ and has been entrusted with this same responsibility. And while we cannot help but be reminded of the calling of disciples to be fishers of men in a context where we see a parable about fishing, this fishing of the disciples is a slightly different metaphor, one that involves the rescuing and drawing of persons into this citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And we do this, the disciples were to do this, and we are to do this in light of the fires of hell. With the heat of hell at our back, we are to be going out into the world preaching the gospel. A divine rescue mission. Remembering the words of Paul, turn with me if you would to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10 we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Notice that, that we persuade men. Why? Because we must all give an account. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and there is but two destinies from that point forward for the rest of eternity. Heaven, the presence of God forever and ever, or hell and its horror and misery. Like the dragnet which is cast so broadly, we are to be calling all men everywhere to repent. If you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sins. If you have not called upon Christ as your Savior. If you have not mourned over your wickedness. Do it without delay. Call upon the Lord. There's none He will turn away. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted, If you are without Christ, you should realize that however disappointing you think your life is now, there will come a day when it will seem good compared to that suffering. And the memory of your good things will haunt you and increase your suffering unless you repent now and come to Jesus. For those who want to deny hell, sadly there's some who, I say some, there's actually many who call themselves Christians who either downplay or outright deny hell. C.S. Lewis provides a sound response, saying, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do then? To wipe out your past sins at all costs? To give you a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? Because if that's what you expect, he says, he has done so, but it's at Calvary. 
Apart from Calvary, there will not be any forgiveness. Are you asking to be left alone? Alas, he says, I am afraid that's what he will do, is leave you alone. If you do not turn to Christ, he will turn you over to your sin and to your wickedness. These parables this morning should impress upon us really our need to understand and to study the doctrine of hell. Not so that you lord it over anyone, but so that you weep as Christ wept when he looked over Jerusalem and wept knowing the end of so many in that great city. Studying the doctrine of hell should be a motivation for evangelism. If you struggle to preach the gospel, if you struggle to share the gospel with your neighbor, if you shirk back in fear, the harsh truth is that you're selfish. If you are failing to preach the gospel because you are concerned or afraid of how you will be perceived or that you'll say the wrong word, it is selfishness. If you want to know how do I shake myself from the selfishness, study the doctrine of hell. Because there, there is such a reality and such a horror and a dread to the reality of what hell is that it will, will and should drive the true believer to preaching the gospel. Likewise, from these parables, we see the necessity of studying Old and New Testament and the calling for all believers to rise to the level of scribes. We are all called to be scribes. Scribes in our understanding of Scripture. And then we are to use, and stu- use what we study to proclaim and to treat, teach, drawing from the new and the old. Every believer has a sphere of influence in those whom they can teach, whom they can instruct. Finally, there's a sense of comfort that comes in this that is not lost on the psalmist, is not lost in the New Testament writers, and that is that God does bring all wickedness to judgment. In a world where so much wickedness abounds, where it feels like wickedness goes unpunished, the finality and the certainty of hell provides comfort that there is a God, a good God, a sovereign God who is in charge, who will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. As hard as it may seem and as long as it may seem on this earth, it is but a blink of the eye compared to eternity where the judgment is meted out. And so it gives us comfort. We don't need to take vengeance into our own hands. Instead, we commit ourselves to the one who has called us to preach the Gospels, to go out into all the world proclaiming the hope of salvation. That's our exhortation this morning. Is that as we meditate, as we think about the horror of hell, that we would be driven to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your instruction to us this morning. Thank you for peeling back enough of the curtain of eternity to give us a glimpse into the horror of hell. Father, you've also gently pulled back portions of the curtain of heaven 
and oh, the glories of the riches that are to come. As Paul said in Romans 8, does not consider the sufferings of this present life to be considered to the glories that are to be revealed. We thank you for that. That you are as gracious, as kind, and as merciful as you are just and serious about punishing sin. Pray that we would further delight and draw closer to you. That we would love you more in light of what you've saved us from. And that love for you would be manifest in us preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel in our lives and in our words, drawing forth from this treasury. May we understand because of the seriousness of what is at stake, this cosmic conflict, would we redouble our efforts, renew our efforts to study you, to study what you have revealed about yourself in Scripture, and to proclaim it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.